Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your faithful, trusty, loyal host, Sourdough, coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, am I happy to be back. Happy New Year. Did you guys have a fantastic holiday season? I did, for the most part. I think I'm sobered up now. A lot of holiday cheer was had, and uh, I'm feeling good. I'm, I'm taking January off. I'm going to air out. No champagne, no wine, no beer, no whiskey for me in January. I need to sober up. I need to air out. But uh, it was a heck of a December, not the least of which was because your boy, Man One, the one and only LA OG artist, and biz- my business partner, Man One, and I uh, traveled to Kathmandu, Nepal to work with Nepali artists to produce two incredible public street art murals in partnership with the U.S. Embassy in Nepal, as well as the art gallery Artudio there in Kathmandu. And so that was a hell of a trip, and I can't wait to tell you about that, which I will do in a future episode. Today is not the day, but I did want to give you a little... Heads up, because, man, that was a hell of a trip, and I can't wait to tell you guys all about it. So December was hectic with all the travel and all the holiday stuff, and I'm happy to be back, uh, and I hope you are too. So happy freaking New Year, people. Before we get into this episode, I want to, of course, as always, tell you to follow us and like this episode, share this episode, make a comment. Be sure to go to our website, notrealart.com. And check out all the good, healthy stuff we got for you, for you artists and art lovers. A lot of great stuff there. And, you know, listen, I mean, one of the reasons why the holiday season for me was great was because, you know, sometimes I have to pinch myself because I feel like I have the best job in the world because I get to sit down and talk to the world's most creative people. At least the creative people I think are amazing and You know, we're here in L.A. and, you know, part of what's great about living in L.A. is brilliant, creative people live among us. I mean, you know, they 
They walk next next to us on the street. They drive next to us in their cars. They buy their coffee at the same coffee shop. They get their you know milk at the same bodega. <laughs> and you know it's it's six degrees of separation a lot of times, right? You know you know somebody who knows somebody. And uh, not too long ago, I realized that a friend of mine's a father is actually this <laughs> incredible renaissance man, and I wanted to have him on the show. And so I got to, right before the holiday break, I got to sit down with this incredible human being, the one and only Zach Norman, a.k.a. Howard Zucker, a true renaissance man, and got to sit down and talk to him about his life and his storied career. And it was such a joy and an honor to be able to sit down with Zach and hear his story. You may not know the name, but you probably know the face because he's been in countless movies and TV shows. But this guy, I mean, he's like I said, he's a renaissance man. So yes, he's an actor, but he's a comedian. He's a producer. He finances movies and shows. He is a painter. He's an art collector, on and on. His CV goes musician, you know, real estate developer. <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, he got his MBA from Harvard Business School after graduating from Vanderbilt. So, you know, this guy's life is, you know, listen, we all want to grow up to be Zach, let me tell you. And, you know, it was such an honor to have him on the show and be inspired by his life story. And so we're sitting down today and hearing from the one and only Zach Norman, a.k.a. Howard Zucker. And you've probably seen him in movies like Romancing the Stone. Have you seen that? Freaking classic movie. Uh, Cadillac Man, uh, Ragtime. I believe he even won a Oscar for a project that he was in. Where are my notes here? Where are my notes? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Ah, Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature in 1974, Hearts and Minds. And so, yes, I mean, this guy, Zach Norman, is legit OG Renaissance man, and we are so grateful to have him on. And oh, by the way, did I mention his art collection? Yeah, sure, he's a Renaissance man who paints himself. But this guy came up with amazing artists out of New York in the 70s and the 80s. I mean, he was hanging out with Basquiat. He was hanging out with Warhol, with Keith Haring. He was buying their paintings back in the day and collecting their paintings. And so his art collection includes originals from Basquiat. And I think he even auctioned off a few of these paintings not too long ago for a nice sum of money. But that's not even the point. The point is he was able to call these guys friends and, and go to their studios and buy their art at rock bottom prices, I'm sure. Anyway, I am thrilled to have the one and only Zach Norman uh, on the show today. And so uh, without further ado, uh, I want to get into this very special episode and hear from this gentleman who was very generous enough to sit down and give us his time here on Not Real Art. So without further ado, here's the one and only Zach Norman. Zach, welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast. Well, I feel uh, more than welcome. It's uh, It gives me a big smile being here. Man, we've got a great life, don't we? We get to come together and talk about our love for art and artistry. It's something I never thought about as a kid. And all of a sudden, it started to creep all over me. And at this point in life, 
at the, I say, um, my th- 83rd year, but my wife doesn't like that. Uh, she calls me 82. <laughs> she wants a younger man. That's right. <laughs> Smart woman. That's right. <laughs> so how did you discover your love for art and artistry? I had absolutely no thought of art. In addition to not having any thought of art, my father told me that anybody that goes to a museum is full of, which I won't mention the name because it uh, depends on where this recording (laughs) is going. But you get the answer, (laughs) don't you? Yes, yes, yes. Starts with us, ends with That's right. Well, we all have it inside us. And we remove it, but nevertheless, yeah, people talk about it, and that's what he said to me. So I was not going to a museum and not looking at art until one day, much, much later, mm. I began to notice these things mm. and get interested. Mm. And uh, it took me, I was 36 years old. Mm. When I did my own first painting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now uh, I've been painting uh, for all those years from 36 to 82. I'm not going to go into the details. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Again, family show. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you've had, you know, as an artist, right? You've had, as I understand it, you know, a few different sorts of uh, iterations or layers or, you know, dimensions to your art. I mean, as I understand it, you got started really as an actor, did you not? Oh, I got started as a musician. As a musician, okay. Yeah, I made my television debut at 12 years old. Whoa. That's right. 1950. Weren't there laws against that at the time? <laughs> no, there weren't. There weren't laws against that. Nobody thought about it in yeah. those days. But I went on a show called Community Auditions in Boston. It was a talent show. And on that show, I had absolutely no, I was, it was April, and you see how bad my memory is at 82. It was April 8th, 1953. (laughs) Yeah. Okay? And I remember so clearly sitting behind the drums and the guys around me, Mm. And I had to speak Mm. and introduce the band. (laughs) It was called, my real name is Howard Zucker. So I was Howie Zucker in those days. Mm -hmm. They called me Zook. Zook became Zach, and then I became Zach Norman. But that's another story. Right. A whole other podcast. Yes. Anyway, there I was, and talking on television and introducing these guys. Fortunately, I was sitting behind my drums, but all of a sudden my legs began to shake. (laughs) I had absolutely no idea, truly, what was going on. But what was going on is I was getting nervous. Sure, sure, (laughs) sure, yeah. So that was my beginning. Amazing, amazing. So music, so you were a drummer. For how long did you sit behind a trap set? Uh, Man, I was a drummer from uh, the uh, third grade. The third grade, I, like nobody else in the class, was six years old. Mm -hmm. Everybody else was seven. Mm -hmm. I'll go into that another time (laughs) with you. I've done it previously. Yeah. Not today. So anyway, I was in the third grade and they said, would you like to play a musical instrument? Mm, mm. And I said, I sure would. And you had to get your family permission. Right. So I went home and I said, Dad, I need permission. I want to 
I would like to play uh, an instrument. Mm -hmm. He said, what would you like to play? I said, I think I'd like to play the trumpet. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, okay, let me check and see if that works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he came back shortly thereafter and said, they don't have any more trumpets. Stop making them. <laughs> I, I said, they don't have any? Yeah. He said, no. What What else would you like? I said, well, th then the saxophone. He said, let me check. And he checked. And he came back and he said, there's no more saxophones. Stop making them. Wow. <laughs> I said, what, what do you think I should do, mm, Dad? Mm. He said, I think you should play the drums. The drums? I didn't know what he was talking about. And I said, okay. And that's how I became a drummer. Yeah. Only years later did I understand that my father always wanted to be a drummer and never was. Fascinating. And here I became a drummer. Yeah. So drummer in the third grade, television at 12, <laughs> okay? Yeah. And working nightclubs with a phony ID at the age of 14. Oh, the good old days. So I'm working there, and all of a sudden I see comedians, guys walking out, talking to the audience, the audience laughing. That was one thing. But the ramifications of the guy talking and the people laughing were girls, <laughs> ladies, who came upon this comic. And all of a sudden, I began to say, I think I want to be a comic. Yes. And it had little to do with the laughter but a lot to do with love. <laughs> yes. Well, I'll tell you what. I also understand it had something to do with Lenny. Oh, it did. It did. This is what I saw as a kid. And then I was working. I was going to school. And I was driving. And I'm driving home one day. I think I was 18 years mm. old. Mm. And I was in Boston. Mm. And I... I'm listening on the radio, and I've seen all these comics in the clubs I was working. And all of a sudden, a guy came on the radio and said things that I never heard before. Mm. And man, were they funny. Yeah. And they got me. And I said, holy moly. And they said, this man is now working on 38th Street in New York at the blah, blah, blah. And he goes from doop. To doop, and I immediately said, I'm going there and see him. And I did go and see him, and he is absolutely the reason that I became a comedian. It wasn't the women anymore. It wasn't being getting out from behind the drums. It was relating to human beings and beginning to understand what life was about and why it was funny. Ironically, a few years later, I ended up spending a whole evening talking to Lenny. And I wasn't mature enough to really relate mm. how he had motivated me to become a comedian. Mm. Mm. But I did when I saw him at a later time. And now, cut to London. In 19, am I saying it right? 19, it's tough when you, you're born when I was born. But it was 1967. And I opened at the London Playboy Club mm. 
as a comedian. Mm. Mm-hmm. And there I was. No, it was 66 because okay. I was working in Europe. Mm-hmm. And I went to the London Playboy Club. Sure. I opened there a year later or 10 months later. But I was there in London in 66 working those Paris, I mean, France, Italy, Spain, the army bases. Yeah. And I opened up the Herald Tribune. And on page five on the left side was a tiny little paragraph. And the little paragraph had a heading. And it said, sick comic is dead. Mm. And that was when I found out Lenny was gone. And that's when I looked at that Playboy Club. And ironically, I said, I'm going to be back. And 10 months later, I was back. And I hate to say it because it's complimentary, but it's true. Variety then said about me as a comic, all from Lenny, all the the beginnings from Lenny. Mm-hmm. Variety said in the review for me opening at the London Playboy Club in 1967, one of the funniest men to ever cross these shores. Mm. And boy, I looked up and thanked Lenny. Yeah. Lenny Bruce, the one and only. Man, he just changed the life of comedy. Right. Right. A true innovator, a true trailblazer. Well, he talked about feelings, life. Yeah. Yeah. Spectacular. Well, that is the power of art, right? You know, to help us understand the human experience, you know, understand our humanity, uh, whether it's through comedy or music or the visual arts. I mean, this is the power of art, right? To to to, oh, to, to bring a mirror, you know, to show us a mirror to ourselves. But the great way to be unique and different, special, mm. is what you just said: mm. to get to know yourself, mm. because nobody can give. What you can give, it is unique, it is different, it may be similar, Mm. but it's going to be special. So how can you do that? There's only only one way to do that, Mm. and that's to begin to get to know you. Right, right. And that's art. Self-awareness. Well, that's art because it's it's going to be something that nobody else has ever done specifically and particularly in that manner. Right. What a trip. What a trip. So comedy led to theater and acting? Or did, was uh, were they sort of, you know, bouncing you, back and forth? You, you asked me a question. <laughs> and I will answer you. Not quite. Because acting began for me when I was a freshman in college. Got it. And it acted, it began for me not through anything else and the, your agent's don't, calling. Don't don't. I'm going <laughs> to shut that off. I don't. Is that care. your lawyer, your agent, or your accountant? It, it could be could be any one of them, but you won't be hearing it anymore. <laughs> so just because of the '82, I want to make sure I'm back on the right track. Got it. Got it. Got it. So Vanderbilt. Uh, so freshman Vanderbilt, year. I'm, I'm at Vanderbilt, and um, you know I am who I am. I'm a freshman, and I see this. Tall, blonde, beautiful girl walking across the campus. Mm. So this is long before me hearing mm-hmm. Lenny Bruce mm-hmm. on the radio. Mm-hmm. And I followed her and she went into the theater. And there I was in the theater. And the guy asked me what I have done. 
in the theater and I named all the nightclubs that I mm-hmm. played and mm-hmm. I just put one little line at the end of it. Theater. Mm. I said, the frolic, theater. The surf, theater. They were all nightclubs. (laughs) Right. But they were now theaters. of a sort. That's right. So that's how I got in the theater. My first play was at 17 years old. Mm -hmm. And again, long before the, uh, gee whiz, uh, long before the London Playboy Club, Mm -hmm. I got a terrific review in the Nashville, Tennessean. <laughs> I forgot You're about on your that. Way. Yeah, I forgot about that. But it's a big help when somebody says he's good. Oh yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So there I became an actor. Right. And the acting then took me from there to the neighborhood playhouse for the uh, summer of 1958. And on from there to working the Catskill mm. uh, Mountains as, sure. a, as a comic. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, the whole thing began slowly until I realized at the age of 22 mm. that I would like to, I had a hotel room. There was one thing missing. Mm. There was no toilet. Mm. I yeah. wanted to have a private toilet. <laughs> uh, who you know, doesn't? <laughs> you know, so I said Is that to too myself, much to ask? <laughs> I said to myself, man, you know, I, I didn't think much about it, but I'm not making much money. I said, I've been told all my life that if you make money, then everything is going to be great. Mm. So I had a cousin who was in the real estate business back in Boston mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, called him and I got a job and I went up to Boston just turning 23 years old mm-hmm. and uh, began the real estate business. And luckily and fortunately, I became, believe it or not, in a year and a half, a millionaire. Mm-hmm. And then about a year and a half from that, I realized that being rich was not the answer Mm. because now I was rich Mm -hmm. and I was free. Mm -hmm. And then that's how I went back to New York and started in show business Mm -hmm. again. Yeah. Because I was doing it quietly. Right. In Boston Mm -hmm. at a certain point, Mm -hmm. uh, I changed my name. I was working under a name that I thought was pretty good. I worked under the name of Lance Lipschitz. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. and uh, I wanted to be discreet. <laughs> yeah. And I worked uh, the theater there, yes, the yes. Uh, theater company of Boston, and yes. I worked the clubs. Right. And my partner, who was my cousin, yeah. the guy I went to work for, became then my partner mm. when I was so successful in the mortgage brokerage business mm. and so forth. Mm-hmm. And one day, uh, we were building a building Mm -hmm. in the old city that I'd grown up in. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I got a phone call at 6 o'clock in the morning on Mm. a Sunday. Mm. And I heard a voice, and it was, you know, blatantly and positively my partner and my cousin. Mm -hmm. And he screamed over the phone. He said, Lance, is this you, Lance? And what he had seen that morning, he opened the Boston Globe and there was a picture of me in the front page of the art section. And here, Howard Zucker, his nephew, okay, or his yeah. cousin, yeah, right, 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 was 
pictured in the paper, and underneath it, it said, Lance Lipschitz is opening Wednesday in The Good Woman of Sichuan by Bertolt Brecht. <laughs> so that was the beginning of the end of Living my real estate Living a double life, career. how dare you. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. So Moonlighting. Then I was no more Lance Lipschitz, no more Howard Zucker. I was Zach Norman. Zach and I went off and started work in New York and then off to the uh, uh, Europe, to yep. all the army bases in France, mm-hmm. Italy, Germany. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then 10 months later, as I said earlier, the Playboy Club in London. Well, then eventually you land in L.A. and start doing movies and TV, yeah? Oh, yes. And the, the biggest and simplest thing to say is that I learned in the real estate business about a thing called depreciation. Mm. And depreciation means tax write-offs, mm. saving money. So mm. if you buy a building and you buy it for X amount of dollars, 20 years, 5% each year, you write off mm. your taxes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I found out that Warner Brothers and Paramount and all these major movie companies were taking movies and there was something called, and this was 1969 Mm -hmm. that this revelation actually in 68 came to me and I saw what they were doing and what it is to make it real simple. If I made a picture for $10 million Mm -hmm. and it only cost me $1 million in cash Because if I hired you as an actor and gave you a million dollars and I said, okay, you got a million dollars, but I'm going to give you a hundred thousand dollars cash and the other 900 you'll get out of the cash flow from the movie if and when it does create that cash flow. Right, right. But if it doesn't, you don't get the money. Right. However, in 1969, until right up until January 1st, 1977, mm-hmm. so you're talking about eight years, yeah. if you put a million dollars in a $10 million movie and the million dollars made the movie, the first year this opened in a theater, you would write off 66% of the gross cost of the movie. So it means you'd be writing off $6,600,000 mm. for the million you put up. Yeah. If you're in the 50% bracket, you would be getting 3300000 in the write-off on your taxes. Mm. Subtract the million in cash you put up and you make $2,600,000. Mm. Well, I became a very popular guy <laughs> with rich people. Yeah. And that's a fact. Yeah. And what happened is, in the course of my career, I have produced, presented, financed over 40 movies. And my most proud movie was 1975's Academy Award for the Best Documentary called Hearts and Minds, Mm. which is really very, very, very important and part of the reason that the Vietnam War was stopped. So what a life. What a life. What a life. And then so much of what I love about your story 
and this is just a fact of life anyway, right? Which is, you know, understanding where you are at, at a certain point in time, you know, understanding what opportunities are around you, seeing the environment in which you're in and being able to hopefully appreciate it for what it is and, and hopefully have the, the resources, the opportunities to somehow engage, right? And so you, along your journey as an artist in New York and here, even here in LA, you have this wonderful opportunity to meet incredible visual artists and you happen to have the resource to be able to buy their art as well. Of course, some of these artists were nobodies at that time. And, you know, and here you're buying paintings from Basquiat, you're buying, you know, works from amazing and, and artists. Having absolutely no understanding and no no motivation by the monetary aspect. Sure. Just like was, what you like. I was told there's this guy and he lived on a second story walk up uh, and he was actually 22 years old mm. when I met Jean-Michel Basquiat. Mm. 22 years old and I looked at 50 paintings that he had in his studio. Mm. And man, I bought eventually... In 1962, I bought five Basquiat's. Mm -hmm. 1982. Uh, 82. Yeah, 1982. Yeah, five 82. Basquiat's. Thank you. Yeah. And the, the reason I said 62 is because I'm 82. <laughs> right, right, right. You right. understand yeah, that? Yes, 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 yes. When, yeah, I, was 40, here. <laughs> when I was 47, I used to say 47. Right, right, right. right. But you'll see, yes. you who are listening, enjoy today yes because you remember how old you are mm -hmm. take us back to that day when you walk into basquiat's second floor uh, studio apartment where he's working and painting i mean what did you see feel see smell what was well, it like? first of take all I, I saw 50 50 paintings and it was it's different difficult to comprehend to digest all these works and mm -hmm. he was quite quiet and I picked out a picture that I really, really liked so much. Mm. And it was the beginning because that year I bought four more. You know, I bought five pictures in 62. That particular picture that I bought ultimately sold in um, London mm. in 2016, I think it was, uh, for 12 million pounds. Mm. And I paid $3,600 for <laughs> it. was the most expensive painting I ever bought from Basquiat. Right, right. I bought paintings for $1,800, for $1,200, right. you know. And that, my friend, is the exact opposite of depreciation. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That is quite. That's called A. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. So what was he like? Uh, you said he, he, he was, was quiet. A, but... He was a quiet guy. And I uh, got to know uh, Andy Warhol very well also. And uh, I was so excited when they got together and they had a show. And at this point, I was doing pretty good. And I went down to that show that was Warhol and Basquiat, and yes. I was ready to buy. Mm -hmm. And I walked into the show, and so bizarre, since I have purchased Warhol separately and Basquiat, I was so disappointed there was not one painting that I was attracted to yeah, that I right. wanted to interesting, buy. Interesting, interesting. So Nothing spoke inter to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. So I don't know. Uh, the 
mad thing, the wild thing, is that this man died at the age, Basquiat, of 27 years old in 1968. And he was such a brilliant artist. And it's so sad and it's on one hand, and it's so great on the other hand that he was able to do at his age. Right. When I met him, you know, he was 22. Uh, that's where I got the 62 that went to the 82. <laughs> but now here we are in 22. <laughs> How far can we keep that? How long favorite, can we keep this going? It, it's, it's so amazing. <laughs> can you do it two more times? It's so amazing because my favorite number is four. <laughs> Well, so you, <laughs> I, <laughs> so right, so and, and Keith Herring's running around these oh, guys Keith too. Herring, so, so my know. guess is that you met him uh, as well. Oh, yeah, sure, I met him, and I bought a number of paintings from him. And you saw up there a piece of work that says uh, to me and my uh, mm-hmm. and my wife. Yeah, yeah, and it's just so joyful to walk around my house. I now, as you saw. I get a new painting mm. and I can't just put it on the wall. I have to figure out which one I'm going to take down right. in order to put the other one up. Right, right, so right. So it's getting to feel like I should have a bigger house. <laughs> time, to th- time to shop around. You know, it's so interesting. I was having a conversation with someone the other day who, you know, was really curious about the art market and wanted to, you know, get, wants to start collecting a little bit. And they came to me and said, you know, said, you know, teach me about the art market. I want to buy art and and you know about art and teach. I said, you know what, just go home and watch the documentary about Herb and Dorothy Vogel. Just go home and watch that documentary. That is about all you need to know <laughs> when it comes to buying art, right? You go out, you meet these artists, and you buy what you love. Their story is just one of those special stories that I think every would-be uh, art enthusiast uh, needs to know about. Well, what you're saying is so intelligent and so perceptive for a different reason mm. from my perspective. Mm. Because when you go and look at enough art and react, Mm. respond Mm. to something that you love, you buy it, you take it home, and whether it makes this jump as Basquiat and and many artists that I bought did, Mm -hmm. if you love it and it goes nowhere, Look at the joy you got just looking at it, appreciating it, digesting it because mm-hmm. it's part of you. That's right. That's right. And that's the big one. That's the big one. That's the big one. So who are some of the other artists that you've enjoyed collecting over the years? Well, there's so many, my goodness. You know, if I were younger, I could tell you much faster. You understand? Oh, yeah. Well, hell, I, I don't even remember half the names of the artists. That I, I, I just want to, yeah. you, you in the audience know, appreciate what you're hearing right now because you'll remember it. And pretty soon, it'll become more difficult. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of who my favorite ones are. There's so many that I love. Mm. Well, you have a lot of, we're sitting here in your courtyard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have a lot of sculptures around. Yes, so yes. Uh, tell me the, about some of these sculptures. Well, the primary guy that is my favorite is a guy named Leonard Glasser. Okay. And if you look around here, you see so much sculpture mm. by yeah. Leonard. And he has 
a very uh, interesting life and history as an artist. And we are now getting together and putting a, a company together where we're going to have young artists, new artists, mm-hmm. doesn't mean young, mm-hmm. new artists, more important, getting into various competitions. Mm. And we want to create a gallery mm. where these young people will be seen and what one has to do today in order to be seen, you have to publicize, mm. promote, yes. let people know they exist. Yes. So that's what I'm doing at this point. One of the things I'm doing is creating a new gallery. Mm. And it's called Revere oh, great Art. Yeah, love that. And it happens that I grew up in Revere. Oh. Massachusetts. <laughs> Full circle, people. Yes. So it became Revere Art. One word, and you can, uh, and we now have Revere, capital R, art, dot com. Dot com. Dot com. Well, that's super exciting. And what a, what a fantastic opportunity for young artists that you'll uh, be able to, you know, platform. Oh, yeah. It's, it's not just the artists. It's the people who aren't even involved in art to be able to understand why and how they respond to art. Yes. Because then it begins to reflect for them their life. Yes. That's what happened to me. Yes. I would look at a piece of art and say, well, gee, it's so great. Why? Why? Because it inspires, instills, Mm. creates Mm -hmm. my memories, my feelings, And that's what great art is for an individual person. Yes, yes. The other part of uh, being artists ourselves, Leonard Glasser, one of the great artists that I know, Mm -hmm. is a very important aspect in the terms of analytically people buying art. Leonard is 87 years old. Mm -hmm. So you see these pragmatic people who don't, by necessarily emotionally, but pragmatically, mm-hmm. like an 87-year-old artist mm. because they feel soon his art will become even worth more money. Yeah. And that's for me, too, being 82. <laughs> right. Let's play out the clock, people. Um, they think, yeah, no, but that is that is that idea that, uh, well, there will be no more of these That's pieces. Right. And yeah, you know, some might call that a perverse incentive, but that is how our world works. Yeah. And well, I just, you know, I'm such a big fan of anybody that, you know, tries to um, uh, platform young artists, to democratize art, to promote and to educate the regular Joe or Jane out there about uh, how they can to participate in the art well, world. For, for me, it's not, it was, it's not education. For me, it's such a joy yeah. that I never knew as a kid. Yeah. And that slowly by digesting, looking, living, mm-hmm. it's added such a dimension to my life. Yes. Enjoying and understanding myself mm-hmm. by looking at the reflection of other people's emotions on canvas. What a trip. Right. In every uh, aspect. Right. Right. It is that joy, you know, and I think that that gets lost so much and it can and it does. Unfortunately, it feels like the sort of, um, shall we say, the 
gatekeepers, intelligentsias, the stakeholders of the various art worlds, um, you know, love to create a mystique, you know, around uh, said medium, said art form that I feel like sometimes, you know, creates a barrier for folks to really understand and discover that joy. Absolutely. And the biggest joy is that very thing, the discovery. Mm -hmm. And for people looking at art like myself, I never even thought about it. Right. But if you can understand when you start to respond, how it may connect with you and why it connects with you, all of a sudden you're not just enjoying the art, but you're growing as a human being yourself. You know, and that is something that's added such a dimension to my life. Yes. And I think yes. to everybody's who begins to understand it. But who the heck ever heard of that as a kid? Yes. I didn't. Well, and it's, it's you know, that's, that's, that's so true. But it's changing. I mean, you know, it's fascinating to see, um, you know, when I, my own journey coming up, you know, in Chicago, you know, through, even through the 90s, you know, there was a real wall Seemingly, certainly, you know, up until the 90s, if not the 80s, there was a real wall between, you know, kind of what we'll call fine art and commercial art, right? And that wall over the last 20, 30, 20, 25 years has really just been exploded because, you know, whether it's the democratization of tools or the democratization through technology, whatever it happens to be, there's a real fusion, I think, these days, and it's not so bifurcated. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. And for me, the most important thing was to begin to understand my own feelings mm -hmm. and my own emotion. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, when I would look at something and respond in a certain way, I could have identification personally. Mm -hmm. And that's what really exploded the art for me, because I would look now and say, wow, I I feel this and I feel that, mm -hmm. and it's really wonderful. So it says to you or to me, uh, wow, this is the beginning. Yeah. And I want to keep growing because as a kid, I never never looked at a piece of art, yeah. never saw it, right. thought about it, and right. now it's an integral part of my life. Yes. Yes. Well, and let's encourage our listeners to make it an integral part of their lives. And even if it doesn't become, at least begin. Yes. Start. Yes. And I think in most cases, you're going to add a dimension that's going to give you a lot of joy, a lot of pleasure, and a lot of introspection. Mm. Because you look at something and it affects you a certain way, and mm. then you start to say, boy, why am I reacting like that and then you get to know yourself better boy do we need more of that <laughs> <laughs> we certainly do. boy we do need more of that zach i'll tell you what man i'm so grateful and honored that you took time out of your busy ah. schedule sit down and chop it up with me today well, this has I'm, been a real gift. I'm the guy that's grateful not you shouldn't be this is amazing will you come back can we do this again anytime man i so appreciate it and as much as I appreciate it, honestly, I'm so appreciative to reach out to these bunch of people that are listening to this podcast. Mm. And if not so many people, maybe a few, mm. maybe one or two, yes. will be affected and have a more delicious life 
and a more delicious day. That's all I want. Oh, I love that notion. A delicious day. Boy, <laughs> we, we, we want that, don't we? Well, Zach, thanks, man. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. And you have a delicious day. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi DeLauro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.